Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show, we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. My episode today is about a conflict that is escalating in one region of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And this conflict, I think, has the potential to become one of Africa's next big crises. At issue is a brewing situation in a region of the DRC called Kasai. Now, if this region is unfamiliar to you, it is with reason. This was not a part of the country that had heretofore experienced much violence or conflict that caught international attention. Indeed, it is the faraway eastern part of the country, and this is a very large country about the size of Western Europe, that has experienced the bulk of violence over the last several years. And to be honest, Kasai was totally off my radar until earlier this year when two UN workers, including an American and a Swede, went missing there and were later found murdered and mutilated. On the line with me to discuss the situation in Kasai is Ida Sawyer, the Central Africa Director of Human Rights Watch. She does a very good job of explaining how the conflict started, how it is changing, and also the broader political context into which this conflict has erupted. This is one of those global issues that is not making headlines. And, you know, I think it's one of those issues that is being drowned out by constant coverage of the president here in the United States. But nonetheless, it is an important and key global issue that deserves wider attention than I think you will uh, be more informed and be a better, frankly, citizen of the world for having learned a bit about this conflict, where it's headed, and ways in which the international community can help de-escalate the situation. So before we begin, I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who has gotten in touch with me regarding this career panel that I am putting together. If you are a younger professional in foreign policy or any kind of professional and, and you're interested in foreign policy and want to learn a little bit more about people who have had interesting careers in foreign policy, want to ask them questions directly, send me an email using the globaldispatchespodcast.com uh, webpage where there's a contact button, and I will send you more details about this panel, as those details emerge, basically, this is going to be like a Skype conference call that I'm organizing. I'm doing this because a lot of you have emailed me over the last several months and even years asking career advice. Uh, I take it a lot of you listening are younger professionals in foreign policy, want some questions answered, just want some new perspectives on career options, career choices. So this is something that I, I am doing for you. And if you want to participate, just send me an email. I'm happy to facilitate it. All right, and now here is Ida Sawyer of Human Rights Watch. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I'm in Brussels. Have you been kicked out of DRC? Yes, I was kicked out last August. 
I'm yeah. sorry about that. Yeah. What what happened? Eight and a half years. Uh, so it was mostly all of our work around political repression and documenting government security forces firing on peaceful protesters, calling for targeted sanctions. And apparently it became too much. So they, they asked me to leave last August. There you go. And wh- how, how did that happen? Did they just like PNG you? Uh, well, it was more complicated than that. So basically I had needed to renew my work permit and I did that on time. Uh, sometimes it can take several months. So I renewed it in uh, June and then I left the country for a meeting in Europe. And when I went back, uh, that was soon after the U.S. had announced targeted sanctions against uh, a police commander in Kinshasa and the government was very angry and apparently uh, senior officials said that they needed to do something against me when I returned to the country. So uh-huh. they basically annulled my new visa, but my old visa hadn't yet expired. So I had basically a month to try to figure it out. Uh, but then they refused to give me another visa again. And when the old one was almost expired, they called me in and told me I had 24 hours to leave the country. And and now you're in Brussels? Yes. Okay. Well, um, hopefully you'll, you'll, you'll make it back sometime soon. Cause I know a lot of people around the world kind of depend on your analysis. And I told a few people that I was speaking with you and they said, Oh my gosh, she, she's the best. You have to, you have to talk to her about situation in, in the DRC. So thank you for speaking with me. Well, thank you. Good. Okay. So on, on Kasai, um, why should people who are you know, broadly interested in international affairs, you know, pay attention, be paying attention to the situation in Kasai right now? So this is a part of central Congo, you know, right in the in the middle of Africa. It's the size of Western Europe and country that's seen lots of violence over the past two and a half decades. But most of that violence has been in eastern Congo and the central Kasai region had largely been peaceful until this large scale violence broke out last August and Since then, more than 1.3 million people have been displaced, which is more than anywhere else in the world. And this conflict has spread across at least five different provinces. 30,000 people have fled into neighboring Angola, uh, and it just uh, seems to be getting worse. There's no sign of the violence letting up. And this is particularly concerning given the the context that it's happening in with the, the broader political crisis that Congo is facing and the president, Joseph Kabila, who's refusing to step down from power despite the the end of his constitutionally mandated two-term limit, which ended last December. So there are real fears that this violence in the Kasais, together with the broader political crisis in the country, could keep spiraling out of control for Congo, but then also spread into the, the wider region. So I've never been to the DRC, but I've covered it from afar for for many years, mostly through like a diplomatic lens, through United Nations lens. Uh, and you know, while I'm you know familiar of the situation in the east of the country because of of the conflict there, really Kasai had not come on my radar until a few months ago with the the murder of two UN investigators who were investigating some human rights abuses that were taking place there. What were those two uh, investigators investigating, to, to the best of, of your knowledge? 
So the two investigators, Michael J. Sharp, an American, and Zaida Catalan, a Swedish woman, they were members of what's called the UN Group of Experts on Congo, and they're mandated by the Security Council to document large-scale human rights abuses and also try to figure out who is arming and financing the many armed groups, including foreign armed groups active in Congo, and also to recommend individuals uh, to be targeted by targeted for sanctions by the UN Security Council. So individuals responsible for large-scale human rights abuses and violations, as well as arming and supporting armed groups. So Michael and Zaida were doing their investigations as part of their, their mandate for the UN Group of Experts and looking specifically into the violence in the Kasai region that began last August. And maybe to go back a bit and explain how this, how this violence began, uh, it goes back to, to the tensions really started back in 2015 when a new law was passed in Kinshasa to give customary chiefs official status across the country. And so this is, as I said, it's it's a huge country made up of hundreds of ethnic groups and traditional chieftaincies. And this Kasai region in the center of the country had long been an opposition stronghold. And government officials in in Kinshasa, the capital, used this new law to try to impose new chiefs who would be loyal to the regime of President Joseph Kabila. And they refused to recognize chiefs whose loyalty was in question. And, and, and this is like a kind of a traditional way of, of doing politics in, in the region where you have these kind of chiefs that have local legitimacy based on their status that have some sort of also a link to, to the political capital. Is that right? Right. So before this law was passed, the, the local chiefs were really local leaders respected as leaders by the communities where they were where they lived, but they didn't have official links to the government back in Kinshasa. And this new law basically was trying to make them uh, more official and recognized by the government. Uh, But it was manipulated by senior political officials in Kinshasa to try to sort of co-opt the local chieftaincies and get people at a very local level to be loyal to the regime in Kinshasa. So there was this one chief, Jean-Prince Mpandi, who's known as Kamwino Nsapu, uh, and he was one of the chiefs who the government refused to recognize. And he became more and more outspoken and his influence grew. And some senior officials decided he had become too much of a threat. So he was then shot dead outside his home on August 12th of last year. And this is what really triggered the violence that's now spread across five provinces. It's displaced more than 1.3 million people. According to a report by the Catholic Church, at least 3,300 people have been killed since the violence broke out. Over 600 schools have been attacked or destroyed. So it's a very, very large-scale violence. And basically so, this... Mm-hmm. So, 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 so did, did um, like militias or individuals loyal to the chief who was shot dead, presumably by people who are loyal to the government in, in Kinshasa, um, like launch a rebellion then? Yeah, so this it was called the Kamino and Sapu militia was formed initially to protest the execution of their chief and the government's interference in traditional affairs, but that really spread into more of a popular movement across the region. They recruited lots and lots of child soldiers to join the militia or some of them were being used as human shields. And these militia members, uh, often armed really just with large wooden sticks or other crude weapons, 
they would then attack government buildings or members of the security forces and local chiefs who were suspected of being loyal to the government in Kinshasa. And then in response to this, the government security forces have used excessive force, summarily executing hundreds or possibly thousands of suspected militia members or sympathizers across the region. They would go door to door, killing whoever they found inside, apparently suspecting people of supporting the militia just because of their ethnicity or the village they lived in. Uh, And they've also, it's it's gotten even more complicated in recent months uh, with these new militias being formed, backed by the government, ostensibly to go after the militia, but again, targeting civilians across this region. And and so this was the situation into which Sharp and Catalan, the the two UN investigators, and uh, also a number of local Congolese support staff and and drivers were investigated when they went missing and and the two UN people were were found murdered. Is that right? Yes, exactly. So uh, Sharp and Catalan were with their Congolese interpreter and three Congolese motorbike drivers. What do we know about who killed those two UN investigators? So up until now, we really, we don't have clear, convincing evidence about what exactly happened. Uh, A video emerged that the government showed to uh, diplomats in Kinshasa and journalists uh, a bit after their bodies were found. So just to go back a bit, they, they disappeared on... March 12th, when they were carrying out their investigations, and then their bodies were not found until March 27th. Uh, And then soon after that, uh, the government showed this video, which basically shows a, a group of men with red, many of them with red bandanas around their heads, walking uh, Michael and Zaida through a field. Uh, They're barefoot. They don't have their phones or any belongings with them. They walk through the field. Uh, Michael clearly seems a bit uh, ill at ease. He thinks something's off. He comments on how many weapons they have in the group. And as I mentioned earlier, Kamina and Sapu, uh, militia groups usually just have a lot of crude weapons and wooden sticks, but don't have uh, that many firearms. Uh, and then they, they're they walking along in the field. Uh, there's some discussion about whether they're going to see a chief or not. And then eventually they have Michael and Zaida uh, sit down. Uh, and then you hear someone who's off camera uh, giving the orders in French and Lingala. And Lingala is the language spoken in in Western Congo and Kinshasa, uh, to, to shoot. Uh, and then you hear the gunshots and, uh, Michael and Zaida are, are both shot and there, there are several shots. Uh, and then you hear the person giving orders say, order the others to cut, uh, Zaida's head. And then they, they do that as well. And again, the orders are given in, in French and Lingala. Uh, and that's you know, basically the, the end of the video after that. So the government used the video as what they said was proof that they were clearly killed by the Comino and Sapu militia. Um, but from our perspective, the video raised a number of questions. And it's not, it's not at all entirely clear to us that it was definitely Comino and Sapu militia fighters. 
because of the language uh, spoken. carried out the killings. The language, so that was part of it. So Camino and Sapu, the, the language that's spoken in the Kasai region is Chiluba. And if these were just members of the Camino and Sapu militia, uh, they would, you know, likely they would be speaking Chiluba amongst each other. Uh, so that, that was suspicious. Uh, the fact also that there were so many weapons, uh, they were all adults male, you didn't see any children with them. That's also unusual for a Camino Sapu group. Uh, but then just the way the government has you know, responded to uh, the whole incident and clearly you know, acting like they have something to hide from, from the beginning. And you know, as I mentioned, it took several weeks for the, the bodies to be found. Uh, and during the search and rescue efforts by the UN, uh, Congo's government and security force officials were were not cooperative and uh, were not you know, blocking them from going in particular directions. Um, so they're just there. There's you know, growing evidence that that really pokes holes in the official government narrative. Uh, uh, so you know, we don't have at Human Rights Watch. We don't have by any means sort of all the pieces put together. Uh, but there are you know, a number of, of questions that have been raised, which is why you know, we feel that an international independent investigation is really important to to get to the bottom of what really happened. And, and it seems that there we may be one step closer to that investigation. The, the Human Rights Council, uh, High Commissioner for Human Rights, Prince Zaid, uh, Rad al-Hussein, uh, appointed a team of investigators just, just this month, right? Yes, just last Friday. Mm-hmm. So... So finally, this had been a long, a long time coming. There'd been a, a lot of Congolese activists and others pushing for this. And on yeah, last Friday, the Human Rights Council adopted a resolution by consensus, which authorizes the High Commissioner for Human Rights to deploy a team of international independent investigators to investigate all of these large-scale human rights violations and abuses committed in the regions since last August. So it's it's not just specifically on the murders of the UN experts, but it's the the broader violence. And and what's the trajectory of the conflict right now? I mean, it seems to be getting worse, at least from the reporting that I'm seeing. They seem to, or people seem to be recovering new mass graves almost, almost every day. I, I kind of get news reports along those lines. Yeah, there have been, you know, the UN was reporting at least 42 mass graves that they had identified up until last week. Another 10 mass graves were reportedly found uh, this week, uh, although sort of circumstances are, that was by the government. It's not entirely clear, uh, you know, what, what's the story behind those. Uh, but yes, reports of new mass graves. And then there's also this, this new militia group known as the Onamura, uh, which is backed by the government, and they've been carrying out these really brutal, nasty attacks, uh, you know, hacking, burning to death, mutilating pregnant women, babies, small children. Uh, and that's, you know, the sort of new phenomenon. There are also reports that possibly within this Bonamura militia, there are fighters from uh, a former armed group that was active in Katanga province in the south. Southeast, uh, led by a commander known as Gedeon, who has a really nasty human rights record. Uh, and allegedly, his fighters have been sent by government officials again to the Kasai region to hmm. take part in all of this violence. So it does seem to just be getting you know, more and more complicated with many different actors and 
militia groups involved, uh, but the you know, civilians who, who are paying the price. Uh, and can you talk a little bit about the political context in which this is occurring? You you mentioned earlier um, that you know there is this kind of constitutional crisis underway in in DR Congo in Kinshasa, in which uh, the president Kabila is has a sort of extended uh, a term beyond its constitutional limits, according to most interpretations. Is that like a, a fair summary? Yes, exactly. So he, he was supposed to step down on by December 19th of last year, which was the end of his constitutionally mandated two-term limit. Uh, but he's basically managed to hang on to power by delaying elections and then at the same time overseeing this pretty brutal crackdown against those calling for the constitution to be respected and uh, for him to step down. So late last year, uh, amidst lots of pressure on Kabila at the international level, I mentioned that the US and EU targeted sanctions, also from the region with Angola and others raising concerns about uh, whether Kabila really had control over the situation. Uh, And then at the national level, Level with widespread protest across the country. So faced with all of that, Kabila, at the end of the year, he did make some concessions by endorsing a Catholic Church-mediated agreement, which basically uh, says that elections would happen by the end of 2017, and it specified that Kabila would not be a candidate and he would not try to amend the Constitution to give himself a third term. Uh, and then there were other commitments around you know, how the traditional government would be organized, a national oversight council, and, and all of these so-called confidence-building measures to open up political space. So many saw that as, okay, maybe there's hope that we can actually move towards a peaceful democratic transition by the end of this year. Uh, but unfortunately, where you know, six I, I knew there was going to be a but, by the, the line, way. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Unfortunately. Uh, Yeah. So six months down the line and basically the main commitments of that agreement have largely been ignored. And it seems increasingly unlikely that we'll have any credible elections by the end of this year. And there's still no electoral calendar uh, and the commitments about bringing the opposition into the government and this National Oversight Council haven't been respected. The crackdown on the opposition position and activist has continued. And they've also used the violence in the Kasai's as an excuse for why they can't move forward with elections. Mm-hmm. So you've seen the head of the Electoral Commission, even President Kabila himself, when he was in Lubumbashi earlier this week, was saying, well, now how can we how can we organize elections when we have such a national crisis going on and there's so much violence in the Kasai's? Voter registration has been delayed in the Kasai's because of this violence. Uh, so they're basically you know, using this as as another excuse or delaying tactic to to not organize elections. So that's one kind of political tool that sowing instability in this region seems to serve. Is is there anything else? I mean, is this kind of like a hotbed of opposition to Kabila? Yeah, I mean, this the the Kasai region is definitely a big opposition stronghold, and it's the the late opposition leader. Who, who died in February. Uh, he is from this region and he was sort of the main opposition to Kabila in the last 2011 elections. Uh, but really, it's you know, at this point, the Kabila doesn't have 
a strong base of support anywhere in the country. And these polls that have been done by the Congo Research Group and the Congolese Polling Institute have shown just you know overwhelming support for the constitution to be respected and for Kabila to step down and you know, extremely low levels of support for Kabila. Uh, so yes, the Kasais are an opposition stronghold, but they're not you know, unique in that, uh, given the opposition across the country. So what's the way forward, do you think, for the, the situation in Kasai's to be resolved without it escalating further? What, what would be some, some key points for the international community and, and others to focus on to, to kind of reduce the violence there and, and sort of stop this before it spins further out of control? So I think a, a key element for for the Kasai violence is is pushing for justice and showing that there are consequences at you know for the senior the high level commanders there's consequences for all of this violence and i think the the human rights council resolution last friday is is a step towards justice and hopefully the fact that this international team is being deployed will show the actors on the ground the congolese security force officers the militia commanders and others that they're being watched closely and that they could face consequences. Uh, but it remains to be seen, you know, will these investigators actually have access? Will they actually, you know, how will they be able to carry out an unhindered independent investigation? Uh, so I think, you know, pushing to make sure that they're able to do this investigation is really important. Uh, and we're also pushing at the secretary general's level in New York to deploy, for him to deploy a special UN investigation team, uh, specifically looking at the murders of the UN experts. And I think that's you know, a case that does deserve special attention from the secretary general, given that he appointed the experts and they were reported, reporting back to the Security Council and showing justice, you know, not that bringing justice, not just to the, the people who you know, fired the shots, but the commanders uh, would hopefully send a very strong signal to others and act as a deterrent to try to uh, you know, to, to prevent further atrocities. But I think we also can't look at what's happening in the Kasai's separate from this broader political crisis. And I think it's become increasingly clear that the longer Kabila is able to hang on to power, we're likely to just unfortunately see more violence, more abuses, more pockets of instability. Uh, we're also, there have been these series of prison breaks that have happened across the country. Over 5,000 prisoners have escaped in the past few weeks, there was another prison escape today in Kinshasa. They seem to be pretty well planned and coordinated. There are reports of a new pocket of violence uh, starting up in Bakongo and southwestern Congo. So I think, you know, really focusing on how can we actually get to a peaceful democratic transition. And, you know, if Kabila himself is not going to organize elections, then maybe thinking about a way to push him to to step aside and have a transitional uh, government come in to organize the elections. What about the the peacekeeping mission that's deployed to Congo right now, or MINUSCO? It's one of the larger peacekeeping missions uh, the UN has deployed around the world, but my sense is they are mostly deployed in the east of the country, which has historically been the site of most of, of the violence, and there are relatively few peacekeepers in, in Kasai. Is that right? Yes, they're, they're starting to shift that, but 
the large bulk of their forces are still deployed in the east. And that was that was really a reaction to the the M23 rebellion in 2012 and 2013, this Rwandan-backed rebellion that occupied parts of eastern Congo, carried out horrific war crimes against the population. And in response to that rebellion, MONUSCO kind of moved much of its, more of its resources to the east. Uh, and then they've since had you know, less troops in the western, fewer troops in the western part of the country and you know, in some of the, the bigger cities, which have been flashpoints for elections or related violence and this political repression. And then also they have a very you know, small presence in the Kasai region. But you expect, would it help if, if they redeployed more troops to Kasai, do you think? Uh, I think it, it could it could make a difference. Uh, and it all depends on the, you know, how, how willing these troops are to, you know, carry out the patrols that are needed to you know, really protect civilians, respond quickly when there are alerts from the civilian population. Um, so there are, you know, you see varying degrees of, of how much protection the, the troops bring, but I think definitely have, having more of them uh, deployed to the region could, could help the civilian population. And also making sure there are human rights monitors who are deployed to the region who can carry out these investigations and the civil uh, the civil rights groups who who do community relations and also you know can get the alerts from the local communities when uh, a particular area might be at risk of attack uh, well Ida thank you so much for your time and for breaking this all all down for me and and for the listeners you know this I think this is one of the kind of key flashpoints in in Africa maybe in in the world right now that has the potential just to become a, a really yeah. kind of big big crisis so I'm I'm glad that you are here to mm -hmm. help explain it to me and, and to everyone Great well thanks so much for having me All right, big thank you to Ida. Thank you all for listening. And again, I'm, I'm glad to shine a spotlight on this issue. Big thank you to premium subscribers out there. If you've not already done so and you are a premium subscriber and you want my list of Twitter people to follow and Instagram people to follow, and if you want to subscribe to Dawn's Digest for free, that's my daily global humanitarian news clip service that comes complimentary with premium subscription to the podcast just send me a, a note you have my email if you become a premium subscriber so you can send me a note directly and i'll i'll hook you up with all those all right thank you all and we'll see you soon bye the views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of humanity in action